the general doesn't bark an order and everybody automatically submissively responds, but rather the general who succeeds is the one who understands that he or she is, is working through others. There is a time and a place for barking in order and expecting an immediate subservient response. But those times are so infrequent and rare as to be ones that everyone kind of understands at the time. Day to day, it's gaining consensus, even though you're the top dog in the room. It's letting folks hash out, even though you already know the answer, it's letting folks hash out their positions so that when you make a decision, they say, well, I was heard, I had my peace, um, now let me go and accomplish what the old man told me to accomplish. Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. In this podcast, I had the honor of interviewing Major General Retired David Rubenstein. Among the many duties of his career, General Rubenstein was the commander of the Army Medical Department Center and School, which was the unit where I was an instructor before I retired from the Army. He was also the chief of the Army Medical Service Corps, the Army branch that I served in for 23 years. Although I did not work directly with him while we were both on active duty, I can say that General Rubenstein was one of the most respected medical department generals that I knew of during my career. While I only saw him at a distance while we were on active duty, over the last several years, I've had the opportunity to get to know him post-retirement through our mutual interest in health administration education, and we have regularly corresponded about my RWL newsletter. So it was a real pleasure to get to interview him about his remarkable career. I hope you enjoy listening to General Rubenstein's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Major General David Rubenstein. Welcome to the podcast, General Rubenstein. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honor to be here. So I'm really excited to talk to you today because you had a tremendous reputation as being a, a, a great leader during my career, even though we didn't overlap all that much. And I've heard from many people over the years uh, how much they have appreciated your, your support. And I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you because you retired in 2012 and you have since then taken on the role of being an educator and a mentor. And in fact, on your LinkedIn, you say, as a frequent speaker on healthcare leadership, my next career will be spent developing healthcare leaders and their mentors through a menu of talks and seminars. And so I like that because I, you and I have kind of made a similar choice about second careers. And so I, I want to hear uh, how you came to make that decision and exploring what that all means to you. But with all that preamble, I really want to, I, I want to um, really want to explore a little bit about your military career and what that was like for you and, and, and how you came to be uh, a major general and, and what that experience was like. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. So what was it that brought you to the Army, and how did you become a medical service corps officer? 
what what brought me to the army was college not unlike you i i come from a family of five kids and a dad who did not make a whole lot of money and a mom who stayed home raising five kids my neither of my parents went to college i was the first to go to college and i knew i was going to go to college only if i figured out a way to pay for it and working was not the only answer to that part of the answer but not the only answer so i applied for rotc scholarships and that's what i felt i was most comfortable applying for as well as uh, the naval academy and and west point uh, i received uh, no reply back from naval academy i did receive a first alternate appointment from a texas state senator uh, basically saying if if my first choice doesn't accept or doesn't make it then you're my second choice but i did receive an army rotc four year scholarship and with that scholarship i had what i needed in order to go to college because in in my day four year rotc scholarship was an all encompassing scholarship room and board books and fees and that's that's what brought me to the army what brought me to the medical service corps was a failed attempt at going to physical therapy school oh okay uh, i was i was at AM, Texas AM University. And I was going through school intending to become a physical therapist and work towards that regard. I, I only applied to two programs. I didn't really understand the process of apply everywhere and, and figure it out later. I applied to two programs. They both wrote back and said, You're our number one alternate. <laughs> and if uh, someone doesn't show up this summer, then you uh, will be um, you'll be our our number one alternate to come into school. Uh, my backup, as we were putting down our list of what branches do you want and in what order do you want them, I said, okay, medical service, uh, physical therapy will take care of itself. If I don't get into physical therapy school, what do I want to do? And the only reasonable answer was. I was still interested in healthcare was to be a healthcare administrator of some sort in the army. Okay. Well, that's the medical service corps, which offers a tremendous amount of opportunities. There are 26 different specialties in the medical service corps for healthcare executives. So that was my number one choice. And um, then I put down the requisite uh, infantry and armor. Uh, I actually was uh, during my college years, I finished airborne school. And I went to ranger school and got my ranger tab back in the day when ROTC cadets could attend ranger school, not a ROTC version of ranger school, but attend ranger school. And that's what brought me to the medical service corps. Wow. So when you were saying branching and doing PT school, you were looking, this is post-grad, you were going to do grad, graduate PT school. Did yes, I, I was going to do graduate okay. physical therapy. I went to, I went to A&M and graduated with a degree called community health education. In, th that was a very skeleton degree with just a few core courses and then the opportunity to fill in the electives with, with what you wanted to, to do to prepare for a life after undergraduate. So whether it was nursing school or physical therapy school or occupational therapy or, or such. Okay. So, so you were thinking PT and that's why you did the community health education major. That's correct. So what was it that made you want to be in healthcare? I did not play football in college or high school rather. 
I, I did not play football in high school. I had bad knees. I had uh, what's called Oshkosh-Fatter's disease, which is when you grow faster than your bones uh, and and tendons want you to. And so the uh, in your knees uh, are the are the uh, beneficiary of that too rapid growth. So I didn't play football, but I was interested in participating. And so I was a student athletic trainer and I was allowed, uh, the school found money to send me to uh, school um, a couple of summers in a row. I went to do two different high schools in two different cities. And when I went to college, I took that interest in athletic training to the next natural conclusion, which was physical therapy. Okay, neat. Yeah. Um, so lucky for us, you know, uh, that didn't work out for you. <laughs> uh, lucky for lucky that it didn't work out. Um, I did receive a letter from one of the two schools. Uh, yeah. By that time, I was in Germany. I was a medical platoon leader, and I was having a grand time. Okay. Okay. So, speaking of having a grand time, you had a remarkable thirty-five-year career, and have seen, and 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 that career spanned an incredible amount of change both in the army, the military, the army, and army medicine. And, and I know we could go on and on for hours, um, but uh, I, I thought maybe we would kind of chunk your career into three parts, kind of your company grade, which means something to us military folks, but kind of your first 10 years, kind of your field grade time, which is kind of your middle 15 years or so, and then your time, you know, nine years as a general officer. Is that about right? That's about right. Okay. So you came in the army in 1977. I hadn't processed that, but uh, until I was writing these questions up and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, that's like four years after the draft ended. Uh, the military was in a very different place than it is today. Uh, can you tell us what, what was that like when, you know, what was the, what was the, how does it compare to today um, uh, in terms of its feel? There is no comparison. 1977 to today, shortly after I arrived at my first unit. And I graduated from college in uh, the 5th of May, 6th of May. I graduated from officer basic course on the 11th of September, a Friday. On the 14th of September, I was on an airplane to Germany arriving the morning of the 15th of September, 1977. Uh, as you said, that was four years after the draft ended and the army was in this very, very early stage of having mostly drafted soldiers. The Lieutenant platoon leader in the barracks next to mine was uh, thrown into a metal footlocker and that footlocker was thrown out the third floor of the barracks building. Oh, my gosh. Drugs and alcohol were rampant in the Army in 1977. I was doing a check of a barracks, and I smelt uh, marijuana. And I opened the barracks door, and this soldier had a pipe in his mouth, and he dropped the pipe. It hit the ground. It bounced up. I grabbed it. And he said, are you framing me by walking in here with that pipe? <laughs> um, our budgets were tight. As a young company commander, I had an exercise scheduled, a field training exercise scheduled for the middle of September. Silly me. 
when we were planning the exercise, I was told you have a total of 10 vehicle miles you can drive in the next, during your exercise. And uh, there's no food, money for food out in the field. So I changed it from a field training exercise to a BTX, a backyard training exercise, because we were right next to the motor pool. And uh, we set up our, our company aid station and such on the softball field next to our barracks. And the soldiers slept in their rooms and they ate in the, in the mess hall. We had our own mess hall in those days. And so you had, um, you had indiscipline, you had drugs and alcohol, you had uh, tight money, and you had women in the army. And at the, that, was, that was a rarity. When I was a company commander, which is during that first 10-year period, we, there were six women in my battalion. I had all six of them. There, there were three mechanics and three medics. When I was in Germany as a lieutenant, the very beginning of my career, we went to the field and one of our women was pregnant. We had no uniform for her. So she's in the field wearing, it's wintertime, and she's wearing a white parka. Um, not a military parka, but a parka she bought at the store to walk right. downtown in. And so how to handle women in this all-volunteer army. So that was the army that I joined. When, when did we start allowing women to enlist? Um, I, I, you're, you're bringing up a topic. I don't know that. Women, women were allowed to enlist, um, but there weren't many of them. Okay. Be, um, because we hadn't figured out how to sell the army to women. Right. Including maybe having uniforms that would fit them. Including having uniforms, <laughs> A, that would fit them. B, having uniforms. Every soldier, every male soldier had winter coats. Sure. But this pregnant soldier didn't have a winter coat, a military issued winter coat. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's a long way. So with all this kind of kind of pretty, I mean, it's, this is all kind of negative environment that you're describing. What you said, you were having a great time. What was it that sold you staying past your initial four-year payback? My fiance, now my wife of 44 years, and I had an agreement. Um, when we got to my 20th anniversary, we would talk about whether or not we wanted to stay in the Army. Oh, so you went in thinking, I'm doing 20. You least. and I... You and I have both gone to retirement ceremony after retirement ceremony where the retiring soldier or sailor or airman or marine uh, in our life, a retiring soldier, starts off by saying, I had planned on doing this for three years and here I am 30 years later. Yeah. Um, my wife and I had an agreement that we would try it for 20 years and see if we liked it. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, you, so what? Um, how did you come to that decision even before? So you're saying... You made that decision even before you went in. How did you decide, yeah, I'm going to do 20 years of this? The, the TAC officers, the tactical officers at ROTC, the professors of military science to a person were, and here's back to the women thing, to a man, were people I looked up to. Uh, and there are two that I still correspond with. Uh, they were captains oh, and I was a cadet. Okay. And... Um, they're now both retired lieutenant colonels, and um, I still respond 
um, correspond with both of them on occasion. Um, just sent one of them a, a New Year's card, in fact. The so I knew I would enjoy what I was doing. There's a picture in my I Love Me file of me wearing a helmet and carrying a, a fake M M1 carbine, and I looked to be about seven or eight years old. Uh, I, I did not grow <laughs> up in a military family. Yeah. My dad sold insurance. Okay. And my mom would stay home. Uh, my grandfather was a war correspondent in War II. My wife is an Air Force brat, Army Air Corps. Then Air, um, she wasn't, my, my father-in-law joined the Army Air Corps. But my wife is an Air Force brat. And we were, we were interested in this Army life. And so we went in thinking, you know, this is a good life. She, she knew it was a good life. I suspected it would be a good life. And um, to go in with a three-year horizon uh, kind of cuts it short. I knew what 20 years would look like as far as the kinds of assignments. And I didn't think that uh, saying, uh, let's talk about it in three years really would cut the mustard. Well, what was your what would you say was your most formative assignment during your that first phase of your career? I'm not going to answer your question. They were okay. all for, they were all formative. So my okay, first sure. my first 10 years I was doing four different things. I was a medical platoon leader in the 1st Battalion 7th Infantry. Uh, I had 35 medics, a doc and a PA, and we took care of 800, 800 infantrymen. And this is in West Germany. We knew exactly where we were going to set up our aid station if we went to war against the Soviet Union. Uh, we knew where our second position would be, and we knew there was no third position. That, that was the most hands-on assignment uh, a, a young soldier can have. The doc, the PA, and 35 medics. My second assignment was in the 3rd Medical Battalion. I was an operations officer and um, assistant operations officer and the intelligence officer. And it was a matter of learning how to be a staff officer and write staff uh, estimates and help the commander build plans to support operations. My third assignment was at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina as an uh, airborne medic. I was uh, first the adjutant for a year and a half, taking care of a commander who was having a lot of personnel issues. And I was kind of his hand-holding person. And I learned how to deal with senior officers, though I was a junior officer. And then I became a company commander in the, in the Airborne Medical Battalion. I had, when it was all said and done, I had about a half of the battalion's soldiers because of serene organization. I had all the medics in the battalion. I had all the cooks in the battalion. It was a decision the battalion commander made. I, I would never have made that decision, but I ended up with half the battalion. Wow. And how do you deal through senior non-commissioned officers to ensure uh, that soldiers are trained to go to war? And then my fourth assignment was at what was then called the Military Science Division of the Army Medical Department Center and School. And I was an instructor first for a year and a half of as an instructor of 
healthcare doctrine and tactics on the battlefield. And for the second 18 months I was there, I was an instructor of combined arms, filling an infantry lieutenant colonel position because the infantry had new lieutenant colonels to send to the medics at Fort Sam Houston. So I was filling an infantryman's post. Early in a career, whether it's a military career or a civilian career, every job assignment is important and formative because you're still learning. Sure. Speaking of learning, like what did you, what do you feel like you took in terms of leadership from that, from that period that you carried forward with you? And I guess you could say from all of them. Sure. Okay. <laughs> what, what were the real like core lessons you think that carried into the higher leadership? The core lesson for me, and I would say the core lesson for any young manager or leader or executive or soldier is that I didn't know it all. Uh, I, I, I'm a, sometimes invited into ROTC programs to talk to cadets. I have a talk said that's titled uh, what the army wants from you cadet. And I talk about the importance of that non-commissioned officer and the enlisted soldiers in the unit, because the young cadet goes in as a young second Lieutenant been there for in the army for all week and yet his his right hand is a non-commissioned officer who has been in the army for 12 15 years and i have seen time and time again where that young lieutenant comes in and says sergeant here's what we're going to do and why without ever consulting that non-commissioned officer i learned in each of those formative assignments that number one i didn't know it all Number two, you have to listen to the experts. And sometimes those experts are junior to you. And third, that it's not just the military who are around you, but also the civilians. And not just the non-commissioned officers, but the enlisted as the junior enlisted as well. And when I say listen to the experts, that's a two-part answer. One is to talk to your platoon sergeant or to talk to your colleagues who have been there longer than you for our civilian friends and learn from them by talking with them. But also I learned to listen to the experts by watching them. Um, we had a situation in when I was uh, an instructor at Fort Sam Houston. So I'm about eight years into my career. And there was a situation where someone was using the office phones, one of the office phones, to dial on to an adult site to listen to an adult speaker uh, back when the, early on when, you know, this is what, 1985 or 86. No internet. So, at that no point. internet, no <laughs> cell phones. Yeah. And there were about 20 of us instructors, mostly in a single bull room, but some in private offices or in uh, two or three person offices. And the, the Colonel brought us together and said, here's what's happening. We don't know who's doing this. He said, make it stop. It stopped. So whether it was one of the instructors or whether the instructors became more uh, aggressive in locking their doors or whatever it was, that Colonel 
may he now rest in peace. He said, make it stop. And I learned from that. And you don't have to necessarily uh, be the be the guy who's out there patrolling the, the hallways. Um, you just have to make sure that as the senior leader, you set the expectation. So that was, that was uh, that, that's another example of listening uh, to experts. This, this is an example of learning by listening. And that's a memory that'll stick with you. <laughs> oh, forever. <laughs> uh, well, as you move through your career, when you look at the behaviors and uh, efforts of, of young leaders in that part of their career, so the company grade, that first 10 years, lieutenants, captains, when you're kind of scanning across the performance, what do you see? What, what stands out to you as this person is demonstrating potential for future that, that I think this person will be will make a great leader? I would say that there are a couple of things I look for. Number one, and the, my answers are not going to be military specific. My answers are going to run the, uh, be appropriate to a military audience, a civilian audience, a, a young person or an experienced, that's what we say now, an experienced executive. <laughs> um, I'm not a young person. I'm an experienced, experienced. leader. Yeah, I, I feel experienced every day. When I get up, I... <laughs> Uh, number one, is the young leader, is the young manager listening to those around him? Is she or he gathering information by talking to others, uh, not coming in and saying, this is how we're going to do business, but rather gathering information before making a decision. It's okay for the young person to make a decision. It's okay to make a decision that not everyone agrees to. It's not okay to come in and make that decision without at least listening to those people who have some experience. The So listening to junior folks in the organization, I, I tell uh, when I was dealing, I'm still dealing with young civilian executives, I point out that they're getting ready to graduate and they're going to get a job and go into an office and they will have all week on the job, but the people in the office will have five, 10, 15, 20 years doing that job. And it would be criminal if they were to go in and just make decisions without seeking input. So that's number one. Are they listening in order to gain information and gain support? Number two, are they already in their early careers exhibiting a lifelong learning? capability. Are they understanding that they don't know it all? Old leaders like you and I do not know it all. Young leaders certainly don't know it all. And when I was a young soldier, I thought it was important to know what my soldiers knew. And I took, we had correspondence courses for combat medic for medical logistician, for pharmacy tech. I took every one of those correspondence courses. I have uh, in my I Love Me file, I've got certificates saying that I've graduated from pharmacy tech school, from labor uh, medical uh, laboratory school, from medical logistics school. And so does the young leader or manager, military or civilian, exhibit an interest in lifelong learning? 
those those are two key elements to an early career. If the if the young soldier doesn't do that, if the young civilian manager or executive doesn't do that, they they're in for a rough hoe as they continue. So I, I want to ask about you then, um, because this is you know early in your career. Where do you think? I assume you feel like you demonstrated this. I mean, the things you described. I, I I'm not, I mean, you were doing them. The lifelong learning. You know, the listening. Do you feel like that was something you? you got from your parents, from mentors in college? Where do you feel like you really learned to do that yourself? Boy, I, could, I wish I could give you a straight single answer. Uh, I don't think I learned that skill at home. I was the oldest, the eldest of five. So I was the bully by definition. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are eight years between me and brother number five. I, I don't know that I learned that at home. I did learn the listening part at college. I went to Texas A&M University. I was in a, a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day Corps cadets. I, I didn't have to worry about what I was going to wear to class. I was in uniform every day uh, from morning formation at uh, 0630 until after dinner uh, formation and dinner um, when we got back to the rooms. I learned, and of course, as a young freshman, uh, you, you have campusology questions you have to learn every morning you're on the wall and um, or at your, wherever you happen to be, and sophomores are yelling questions and you've got to give answers. So the, the need to learn, um, was there uh, more importantly the need to listen I, I think that i learned about lifelong learning from the army my early days in the uh, in my army career when i was the only medical service corps officer in my unit an infantry battalion and my infantry lieutenant buddy said, you know, you need to come out and learn how to fire this weapon and you need to put mortar rounds down range to get into your world. And I started learning what they were doing. And then I started learning about what a combat medic does uh, and, and a pharmacy tech. And so I, I started to build this, this understanding that you had to keep learning. And the very, very tail end of my... 10 years, first 10 years was when I started my graduate program. I wanted to talk to you about that because that's okay. a connection you and I share. Uh, yes. I didn't go through the Army Baylor, but I had the opportunity to teach into it. So so you, so so the demarcation point for for your kind of second phase of your career was was attendance at the Army Baylor program, uh, which is a master's in health administration program taught by an all army faculty. Uh, or almost all Army faculty. So what made you decide to go to Army Baylor? Because there's a very specific career path that kind of follows that, or at least you know, used to kind of follow that. I think it's a little more general now. Right. And, and this is where the importance of mentors comes into play. My, my application to the Army Baylor program for the summer 1987 start was my third application. Oh, Okay. I, threw away, I threw away the first two applications. One was in an envelope sealed with the appropriate amount of stamps on it. And as I was walking down the hallway, 
of the 307th Medical Battalion Airborne, 82nd Airborne Division. One of the two majors in the battalion saw the envelope and says, what's that? Because it had a bunch of stamps on it because of the weight. And I said, well, this is my application to the Baylor program. He said, you don't want to do that. Let me tell you why. And by the time he had finished with me, I threw it away. It was still in the envelope. I tried <laughs> to steam off the stamps, but that didn't work. And then I left the battalion. I went to be an instructor and filled out the application again. It was in an envelope. The head of, uh, of assignments branch was visiting. And he sat down and we chatted because we had a private, previous assignment together. And he saw the envelope on my desk. He said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's my application to Baylor. I'm going to walk it down to uh, Baylor and avoid the stamps. He said, you don't want to do that. And he explained to me why. And I threw it away. Now, now what was the reasoning? <laughs> what was it? Were they trying to convince you to go operation? They were, they were saying, you're not, a, you're not a healthcare executive. You're a healthcare operations officer. Okay. I mean, you you have been to airborne school. By this point in my career, I wore master paratrooper wings. You've been to ranger school. You've spent uh, your entire career either in field units up to this point, or or teaching about field units. That's your life. You're a, you're a healthcare operations officer, dirty boots in the mud. That's where you belong. And whether I agreed with them or I was afraid, afraid to say no to them. I threw away two applications. Then Major General William Winkenwater, who was the commanding general of the schoolhouse, invited the vice chief of staff of the Army, Max Thurman, General Max Thurman, in to brief General Thurman on something we call the Medical System Program Review, looking at Army medicine on the battlefield from the soldier who gets shot all the way back to the hospital. And today's Army Medical Department, the Army Medical Department you served in looked nothing like um, what we were, we had at the time that we were briefing General Thurman. So the first, the first year is a, a, a briefing done two year, uh, one year apart, two briefings, one year apart. And when I say a briefing, it was eight hour briefing, three days in a row. Oh my gosh. Because we went <laughs> over everything involved in Army medicine. And, um, after the second briefing, General Thurman says, I approve everything you say. And General Winkenwerder picked two officers to go to Germany to brief the medical system program review. He selected me and he selected uh, Lieutenant uh, Major then George Massey. George Massey was a professor on, in the Baylor program. So we're getting ready to go. We go to Germany, to Heidelberg. We're in the Rose Hotel. And I had started an MPH program at that point, a Master's of Public Health, nighttime course at UTSA, because I knew I needed a master's degree. And a Master's of Public Health seemed reasonable. Massey knocks on my door in Heidelberg, Germany. He said, let's go, get, let's go to the castle and get a beer. I said, I can't. Uh, when we get back, I have my first round of tests in this master's program that I started, and I haven't been to school yet. My wife has been going to school for me because I've been out at Camp Bullis teaching field doctrine 
and my wife has been going to school and she and I take notes very, very differently. And so I've got uh, cassette tapes and I've got written notes. I said, I've got to study. He said, Rubenstein, let's go to the castle and get a beer and talk about this. And uh, we did. We got on the airplane and flew home after our briefings. And by the way, we briefed a forehead because the two-star general in Germany had wanted nothing to do with this. He sat down, put his chin on his chest, went to sleep. And his, <laughs> uh, his, his uh, chief of staff said, you may start your briefing. And at the end of the briefing, he elbowed the two-star who got up and walked out of the room. Anyway. Oh, wow. That's a receptive um, audience. <laughs> yeah, receptive audience. Anyway, got home. And the, the Monday that I got back, I walked down. I said, I like to apply to the Baylor program. You have the forms. And they said, we've been waiting for you. No forms are required. Oh. <laughs> um, and that's that's how I got to Baylor. Um, that's funny. You, you know, it's it's not some grand plan I had. It was a grand plan I had twice and, and dumped on. It was a dear, who someone who became uh, a dear friend and... And the closest thing I have to a, a lifelong mentor. And that was Massey? George Massey, who, who um, talking about mentoring. So that's a mentoring moment. Uh, and we're all mentors. Uh, all leaders are mentors just by the fact that our subordinates look at us and see what we do. Like uh, Sawyer telling everybody, make it stop. That was a mentoring moment. Um, this was a mentoring, the value of mentoring. And mentoring doesn't have to be lifelong. It could be a one brief visit or event. So, yes. So I get your I, question. What was the question uh, you asked? We were, uh, you know, <laughs> we were talking about Army Baylor, why you went to Army Baylor. Um, so that's really neat. Three times, it took three times. Um, so I have to ask, and this is mostly for anybody from the Army Baylor program who might be listening. Uh, so I think you had Dave Mangelsdorf and Karen Zucker as, as instructors. Is that right? Or they were they or did you predate them? Karen was on the permanent staff and Dave was a uh, adjunct. OK, so what, was, what were they like back then? Because they were my colleagues and I love them, but they, they um, you know. They, and they have both uh, just retired. Dave retired, what, three years ago, and Karen retired at the end of this most recent academic year, so uh, the end of um, the 2021 academic year. Um, both dedicated to students, both easy to approach, um, both experts in their specialties and willing to share that expertise, not in a, a braggart kind of way, but in an interest in students kind of way. Uh, always uh, giving counsel and always uh, giving a, a helpful hand. I, I would say uh, the the Dave Mangelsdorf and the Karen Zucker that I knew no different than the ones that you worked with as colleagues. Yeah, yeah. they're great. And people, they're and they're both they're both friends. We receive. Um, I saw Karen just recently at, at an event, a a, um, a synagogue event, and she and my sister go to the same synagogue. And uh, I hear from uh, Dave Mengelsdorf by email uh, on occasion. They were institutions in that institution, I think. They were. <laughs> great friends, too. Uh, uh, and Karen's miss, husband as well. And, 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 and Karen's who? husband as well. Oh, oh Marty. Right. Of course. Yeah. 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 
Okay, so so little trip down memory lane for me uh, over. So you going to Army Baylor kind of at the time you went through kind of lined you up to become a 70 alpha. Probably we didn't call it that back. It was a different number. It was 67 right. alpha back then. 67 yeah. alpha healthcare administrator. As opposed to one of the many other fields within, you know, healthcare operation, uh, operations, which is what you had that your, your prior mentors have been trying to steer you towards. Um, what was it that attracted you to the alpha field? What attracted me to 70 alpha, 67 alpha, now 70 alpha healthcare administration was a very selfish uh, view of the world. I knew that I would leave the army at some point. And so I was looking down the road, what would I like to do after the Army? And I felt that what I wanted to be able to do after I left the Army was run a hospital. And while a variety of medical service course specialties can line themselves up to run a hospital, I think that you best present yourself if you've done something like that and prepared yourself to do something like that. I had a talk with Larry Tyler, who uh, runs one of the larger health, uh, healthcare executive search firms. And I still have the, the divots in my chest. He was poking me in the chest because I'd asked him about our soldiers preparing themselves for life after the army. And he says, David, you tell your soldiers they're not going to retire and become or leave the army and be a CEO. They've got to be an SVP or an EVP. That's okay. Maybe a COO. Then they'll they'll groom their self up, their ways up, their way up. Um, but it does help to be trained and educated and experienced in the role. And so, very selfishly, I looked at the at life after the army. And I felt that 70 Alpha healthcare executive, healthcare administrator was what best prepared me for my life after the Army. Now, I point out this is 1987, still what, uh, 25 years before I retired from the Army. <laughs> okay. Uh, but at least at this point, you're starting to look at that, you know, you're 10 years into your 20 year uh, first point. term. Your, your yep. first term, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that you were going to review with your wife when you got there. 20 year enlistment. Um, <laughs> isn't that like the French Legion? Didn't they do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They did it the easy way. They shipped them all to Africa and said, so you, you can't come home. Bring you, yeah. We'll bring you home later. <laughs> um, so, so in, in that second phase of, of your um, army career, uh, as a field grade officer, you served as a hospital chief operating officer, we call it DCA, uh, hospital commander, which is probably the closest we have to uh, the civilian equivalent of a CEO role. And you alternated back and forth between what we refer to as brick and mortar hospitals, which is what civilians would recognize as this is a hospital, and, and deployable units, which are hospitals and tents or whatever else. It, you, know, you did a bunch of different interesting assignments. Um, to include uh, a combat support hospital and a medical brigade. So this is kind of, so you, you had been a muddy boots guy. You got your, you got your blessing from, uh, from, from army <laughs> Baylor and you were turned into a 70 alpha, but you still kind of went back and forth between brick and mortar and, and muddy boots kind of assignments. Now this is kind of in my career. This was the advice. 
what did you learn from from that? Was that is that you know in your mind is that still good advice? And what did you learn from alternating between the field and the brick and mortar world? You, you, you asked me two different but very critical questions. I'll go to the second one first. Uh, during from 1987 to 1997, the second 10 years, I had eight assignments and six moves. Um, moving from Central Texas to West Texas, uh, West Texas to Kansas, Kansas to Virginia, Virginia to Washington State, Washington State to Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania to Georgia. What you learn in these different assignments, different kinds of organizations, you learn to lead in different settings so that when you become a much more senior executive, uh, much more senior leader, you have a broad base, a broad foundation from which to make decisions or approach issues and problems that you may uh, encounter. So you learn from leading in different settings. Uh, you learn about the different roles and missions of the Army, which broadens your, your base of experience. Uh, there's, there's a, I am fond of telling soldiers and this applies if you change the words to our civilian colleagues. I am fond of saying that if you do your job and you do it as well as you can, and it's as better than it's ever been done before, and you do nothing but the same kinds of things, you can probably get to 20 years and retire as lieutenant colonel. Because there'll be enough goofballs who do enough stupid things that they will not get selected for promotion. <laughs> And, um, you know, half of all doctors are in the bottom half of their class and one doctor in every graduating class is at the bottom or nursing school or pharmacy school or fill in the blank. And so if you do your job and you're well recognized for it, you're going to get to 20 year retirement point and uh, lieutenant colonel. But that's not what the Army looks for in a colonel. The Army is looking for a very broad base of experience, besides filling in, having to fill in certain holes and certain specialties. The Army is looking for a broad, broad base of experience for promotion to colonel. And so um, having different roles gives you an appreciation for the many missions and roles of the Army. And then learning the, the broader Army organizational strategy and story, uh, whether that Army-wide or military health system-wide, I think that a variety of assignments provides the, the foundation for excellence and success as a more senior executive. A question I have, so you mentioned you moved, what was it, eight times in 10 years, something like that? Um, in those 10 years, I had eight assignments and moved six times. Okay. I shouldn't say I moved. I had eight assignments. Our family moved six times. Yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. But uh, so one of the things that, that I've discussed with senior leaders and, uh, is, do we move people too often uh, in the military? Do we? So, for example, when you were the DCA COO, analog in the in the you know in the military you served um, um, i don't have your cv right in front of me but maybe two years as a dca is that long enough do we move people too fast is that long enough for you to have had an impact 
move the organization strategically. I mean, most commands are two-year commands and then, you know, CEO for two years mm-hmm. and then out and get another CEO in. What are your thoughts on on that? And, and I, I, I may be touching on a, a sore point No, here. no, 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 no. <laughs> I, you're talking to the guy who got kicked out of the vice chief of staff of the Army's office after a very brief uh, 12-second conversation uh, where I went in and I said, sir, I was on a schedule for something else. And I said, sir, when we're finished talking about uh, the topic that you had me here for, I'd like to talk about uh, converting medical department commands, CEO on steroids, um, uh, moving uh, medical department commands of brick and mortar hospitals from two years to three years, if not four. And uh, we never got to the topic at hand because he kicked me out of the office. He wanted nothing to do with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, because it because it was an army thing. And I can ex- go into detail on that, but it's an army thing for the right reasons, except for running hospitals. No, two years as a deputy commander of administration, which is the chief operating officer, is not enough time. Um, the, the army doesn't have special little enclaves for different parts of the army. The army moves in lockstep in in the whole, in the main. And in the main means moving folks around to give them a broad base of experience so that that when the army is looking at majors to decide who will be lieutenant colonel, they can get a, a sense of that person over time and in different organizations. Not every post has every kind of, a, of an opportunity for the soldiers on that post. And if you're going to do something different, you've got to leave. Brook Army Medical Center here in San Antonio just lost a great medical service corps officer because he had to be moved in order to take an assignment that wasn't available, an critical assignment in his specialty that wasn't available in San, at Fort Sam Houston. And so he moved to the East Coast to get this opportunity. If you're going to progress in the Army, then you're going to move. And to say to the folks who make these decisions, well, I don't want to progress. I want to do this until you kick me out, uh, isn't going to work because you're holding that spot that some junior person needs to take over to, to develop themselves. I have a a Baylor classmate who went to an assignment and he'd been there for three years. And uh, at the end of his three years, I said, when are you leaving? He said, I'm not. Um, The taproot of this tree, his family, grows every day a little deeper. And I'm going to do this until they force the issue. And uh, he did. And he's still there in that community 20 some odd years later. So do we move too often? Uh, some soldiers who experience it will say yes. Some will say no. Uh, it depends on what their expectations are. Okay. That's a fair answer. Um, it is tough, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you, like, when you mentor field grade officers, so majors, lieutenant colonels, so people who are in this second 10 years of a, of a, of a military career, what are you? What advice are you most asked for, and what advice are you most often giving? The question I'm most often asked, or the subject I'm most often asked about, is 
Should I go or should I stay? And the second question I'm asked is, should I take this job or not take this job? One of the frustrating things about me as a mentor, because those are mentoring opportunities, whether there's a whether there's a formal mentoring relationship or not. One of the frustrations of me as a mentor is I don't answer questions. I ask questions and by doing so, try to lead the person to their own natural decision, which mostly they have already made, but they're looking for some sort of external affirmation. And so I sat down with the colonel. I was at a the Surgeon General still invites me to his events, and I feel fortunate about that. But I was at one of his uh, command events, and a colonel came up. The colonel had been selected for command. And the colonel asked me, should I take this command or not? And we went through a decision process at the end of which she already knew what her answer was, but she was looking for external affirmation. At the end of this conversation, she said, okay. I I said, have you decided? She said, I'll tell you tomorrow morning. So the next morning, I grabbed her before the conference started, and I said, have you decided? She said, I have. And she told me her answer. And I said, well, you need to notify the assignments people now. And the reason is, in the Army, if you are given an assignment, Uh, formally given the assignment, not just said you're going to, but you actually get the orders. If you get the orders and you turn them down, you must retire on the first day or you must leave the army on the first day of the seventh month. So you have six months to leave. Whereas, as you and I are more comfortable knowing, when you decide to retire, you drop your papers a year out. You have a year to plan your life. And so that was Tuesday morning and uh, she notified the assignments folks that afternoon, uh, which was fortunate because on Thursday, the orders came out. And I, um, so I don't, don't answer the questions. I ask more questions and lead the person to that conclusion. So do I go or do I stay? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the most frequently asked question. Uh, and then the second one is, should I take this assignment or not? And then we get into the really fun stuff, which is um, why do you like ACHE so much? American College of Healthcare Executives. <laughs> okay. And what if I don't want to do American College of Healthcare Executives? And they're shocked when I say, well, there are other organizations. Let me tell you about them. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to ask about your, you know, kind of your decisions. Um, uh, so it's easy to look, you know, it's easy to look at your CV kind of, retrospectively looking at your development up through uh, 06 and then selection to, to general officer. And I was just like, well, of course, you know, um, this was how it was going to work out. But um, was this intentional? Were you thinking like, I know you said you're going to make it to 20, um, but were you thinking, uh, you know, how, how, how far can I go? Or is there a chance I could maybe make GO? I mean, what, what, when did that kind of come into your head and how much did that control your choices? Well, let me start at the end. Uh, it never controlled my choices. Okay. First of all, I was not in charge of my career starting in 1993 until my retirement in 2012. Okay. Uh, there was only one time. So 93 is about 15 years in. Uh, 15 years in. Okay. 
And um, there was only one time from 1993, uh, middle of 1993, say April, until almost exactly uh, 93, 12, uh, what, 29 years later, uh, 19 years later, 19 years later, there was only one time that I, I made a career assignment choice. I was not in control after that. Um, the, I think that anybody worth their salt says, well, I know I'm going to make it to Lieutenant Colonel. I think I've got what it takes to be selected for Colonel. Not, not, I think everybody says, I can be a Colonel. That's not the issue. The question is, I've got what it takes to be selected to be a Colonel. And that's, that's a difference in, in the Army. Everybody becomes a Lieutenant. I'm, I'm talking about a, a standard uh, course officer, medical service officer. 95% of them are going to become captains because some folks like high school buddy who came home and said to his wife, two and a half years into their first assignment, I just got told we're going to go to Fort Lewis, Washington next. And she said, I'm not leaving Fort Hood. I got a job here. I'm staying here. And so there, and he got out of the army uh, at the end of that, that point. So 95% of all lieutenants become captains. 80% of those will become majors and 70% of those will become lieutenant colonels. That's written into federal law. Also in federal law is 50% will become colonels. So that's where the, that's where the tough cut is. Mm -hmm. And the army is looking for uh, a number of things. They need to fill certain holes with a certain number of people. Like you got to have a socialist, a social worker, you got to have a psychologist. You've got to have an optometrist. Um, and then you have to have so many ops or so many log or fill in the blank. So the question is not, would I be a good colonel, but will I be selected for colonel? I, I, am not embarrassed to say, I felt like I would get selected for colonel. Uh, I think most people worth their salt say, I, I can be selected for colonel. Uh, I, I don't encourage to be thinking beyond that point that's that's just man and I'll, i can get into that later if you want but that's just magic and i can explain that a bit but uh, i i guess in the back of my mind i figured that you know when i look at the folks who are being selected for general i can do as well as they can uh, i can't really mess it up anymore <laughs> so that, that's that's probably in the in the back of your mind you know, I, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in 2019. I still get invited by college programs, by military units, by civilian organizations to go out and speak. Uh, I, I have a couple of talks that um, that are honed over the years, although they are personalized for each organization or each program that I visit. And I was out at Fort Campbell in 2019. And one of the visits I had that day, one of the presentations, because I always try to fill the entire day, and I had six or seven presentations that day. One was with a room full of young captains and lieutenants, and it was a pure town hall event. And the first hand went up, and the young lieutenant says, how do I become a general officer? And the answer is, that's the wrong question. <laughs> how do you become a good captain or a good uh, major? How do you prepare yourself? Lieutenant Colonel, uh, because 
it's it's magic at at that flag grade level. Uh, and so I will admit it was in the back of my mind, but that's not something that you can you can say, here's how you do it with any issue. There's a great book. I, I don't recommend very many leadership books because there are so many out there. If you go to Google today, Amazon.com today, and you type in leadership in the top left-hand corner of the page, it will say uh, one through 20 of more than 60,000 titles. So, but there are, there are three books that I recommend, one of which is called Once an Eagle which admittedly is a, is a slog. It's 1,300 pages, but it's a life of two soldiers, one who grew up on a farm and started life in the military as an infantry private in World War I, the other one who was born to a rich family and went to Milton, West Point. One was a soldier's soldier. The other one was a political backstabber. They both end up as multi-star generals. And you have to ask yourself, what's the right way? Well, morally, ethically, that works out well. But when you get to what's the right way to becoming a general, well, you're two completely different people. So, yeah, I thought about it. I felt that was qualified. That's not something you can uh, uh, plan for. And as I said, um, the, the last um, 19 years of my career were not in my control anyway. So I wanted to ask. I wanted to follow up on that because you're saying so 19, so 93, 15 years in, that's what selection to lieutenant colonel thereabouts. Yes, yes. Um, and so, so you're not in control. What do you mean by when you say you weren't uh, in control? What do you mean? That's a good point. Uh, 93, I was selected to be a battalion commander and I commanded, uh, commanded the 18th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, MESH. While I was in command, I was selected for the Army War College. While at the Army War College, I was asked, where do I want to go? Ah, I get to make a decision here. And I said, I want to go to, to uh, Dwight David Eisenhower Army Medical Center and be the deputy commander to be the chief operating officer. So they said, OK, you, that's where you get to go. So I made a decision. While I was there, I was selected for command of the 21st Combat Support Hospital. I went to the 21st. We deployed to Bosnia. While I was in Bosnia, I got a phone call that said, uh, you've been selected for a second command. I'm now a colonel, of course. You've been selected to command Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany. I go off to Germany to command Landstuhl. First year in command, I get a call. You've been selected to command the 30th Medical Brigade. And so, okay. And while I was in the 30th Medical Brigade preparing the unit to deploy to Afghanistan, I received a phone call. You've been selected for Brigadier General. Um, and from that point, uh, you have even less control. In fact, at uh, baby general school, uh, general Peter Schoomaker, the chief of staff of the army comes in and he says, um, just remember a couple of things, three things. Number one, you could die tomorrow and I'll find a replacement as qualified as you. <laughs> Number two, when I tell you to move, move. Number three. When I tell you to retire, retire. Uh, and so 1993, April, I receive uh, the word that I've been selected for battalion command. Uh, 19 years later, I retire. And in those 19 years, I got to pick one two-year long assignment. 
Okay. So uh, this, the, 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 assign the way you just described this was clearly the army kept recognizing you were doing a great job. That's, that's how you get selected. I mean, that's at least my understanding, how you get selected for these yes. roles. Um, you know, because what you're saying was like select for folks who aren't familiar with this process, right? So selection is a, is a committee process. They're looking at your records. They may or may, people on the committee may or may not know who you are personally. And, and so it's a, it's actually a pretty good process for an organization. I mean, compared to maybe some of the nepotism that we see in the, you know, in the <laughs> real world. Well, I, I think and, it's actually and to good. that to that point, um, you've got a room and you've got seven or nine selecting officials. They are each sitting at a desk. They look at each officer's record. They score the record one through six. Uh, one is, what does this person do in the Army? Six is, this is an absolutely must-select water-walking person. And then you can put a negative or a, plot, a positive. Uh, and uh, each officer is scored by each person individually. And before you start the process, everybody stands, puts their right, arm, right hand up, and takes an oath to not talk to each other and not to discuss the deliberations outside the room. So even when you're at the hotel after a full day of doing this, the, the members of the board can't talk to each other about, uh, did you see this record or do you know that right, guy? Right. So it's seven or nine individual votes that are then compilated and com compiled and then uh, rank ordered by score. And then you take a look at the result. So I mean, this idea of not being in control then is really the millet, the millet, the, the the, all these committees were saying, hey, Rubenstein's a pretty good guy. We should give him another chance. And then a year or so later, hey, Rubenstein's a really good guy. We should give him another chance. Yeah. And it just kept, you kind of just kept showing up as, what was it you were doing differently? Why did you keep hitting? What, what, what was it? What's the secret? Um, what was the secret sauce? I think the secret sauce is twofold. Number one, a broad range of assignments. But number two, and you talk about the system, uh, the process is a good process. The process is based on reading evaluation reports. Every officer gets an annual evaluation report. Um, maybe more frequently, if you leave uh, the assignment that you're in, you get an end of assignment report. And as long as there's been 90 days between the last report and your departure, you get another report. I, I worked hard, and, and the report is written based on personal knowledge, of course, by your rater, but also you submit a support form uh, that says, here's what I said I was going to do, here's what I did. I worked hard on that document. And I, I, am, I will tell you that a lot of the sentences, because an officer's got a, a rater's got a lot of people to rate, You've got a lot of reports to write. I made it easy. I tried to put sentences in my support form that I wanted to see on my evaluation. And many times Thanks. making it easy on the rater paid off because though the order in which I listed my accomplishments and the way I worded it, they show up in my support form. Now, the seven or nine officers who are on the board that I talked about, they've only got three or four minutes to look at a record and then it's off to the next record and so I, I try to build my support form so that my evaluation would show up 
and it would be easy to read in those three or four minutes and would tell a story. And then uh, what's important to say is that, you know, two years later, they're looking at me again for another assignment, another command. Uh, of course, there was another, there were another one or two next level up evaluations on what I had been doing. Um, and so you, you can't just rely on whatever system you're in to, to by itself make things happen. And whether you're a military or a civilian leader, you've got to be well attuned to what your system is and how you can influence it to your benefit. What were you, so that, that's, I think, useful advice because I mean, you do have to kind of manage your own career in that, in that way. I'm curious, what was it that you did differently as a leader, you think, that wound up being recognized? I will take you back to the young lieutenant. It's listening to the people around you and uh, never stop learning. When I took command of Longstool Regional Medical Center, which is the military's uh, only medical center in Europe, and is um, a trauma receiving hospital for, um, for casualties out of Mideast or Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait, as well as supporting 92 countries uh, as a regional referral tertiary care medical center. I took command at nine o'clock in the morning and at one o'clock in the afternoon, I was having a get to know the commander meeting with my direct reports. There should have been about 13 people in the room. There were about 85, as best as my secretary could tell. We were at a, a classroom in the education center uh, on post because I was the first medical service corps officer to command a medical center. And I come in and I've got master paratrooper wings on my chest. I've got the EFMB expert field medical badge on my chest. And I've got a ranger tab on my shoulder and a medical service corps officer. And so I, I, to these 85 people, instead of 13, I gave them a little presentation, uh, but, but I, I diverged a little bit from what I had planned on saying, and I covered my MSC caduceus, and I said, don't worry about this. And I covered my ranger tab and my, uh, my master paratrooper wings. I said, don't worry about this stuff. You and I are here for one reason. And that's to take care of that patient who's in a bed right now, or the mom walking into a clinic with their three-year-old child at right now. That's why we're all here, regardless of what we wear on our uniform. The chief of medicine came up to me. He looked, and I'm 5'10", he's about 6'2". And he looks me up and down and he says, well, we'll see about this. <laughs> Two years later, at the end of my too short command, he comes up to me and he's called me chief. Now, I've been around medicine uh, often enough to know the importance of being called chief by a doc as an MSC, unheard of. Have learned it even more so now that I sit on a um, residency review committee of the accrediting uh, council for graduate medical education. So it's, it's under, so it's leading by letting experts have their say. I'm not a doc. I don't know how to be a doc. 
I'm not a nurse. I don't know how to run a labor and delivery deck. Um, we, while we were there at lunch tool, we had, we have a NICU. There is a NICU there, neonatal intensive care unit. And a mom came in and delivered a 10 and a half ounce baby. Wow. Who was a 19 year old woman today. And I remember my first day in the NICU to pay visit because I had seen a picture they had taken of this little baby with a number two yellow pencil. And that's how long she was. And uh, at the end of my visit, they said, sir, you got to leave. Stop asking questions. And I wasn't, you know, I, I was I was trying to understand their process, the neonatologists, the nurses, their process in the role. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the sharpest. I believe in leading people by leading them to do what they know is right. I enjoy nothing more than sitting at the end of the table where the decision maker sits and watching the dialogue. And I've been on the sides of the table where the guy at the end or the gal at the end didn't allow that dialogue. I love that dialogue. I love throwing the yellow flag and saying, wait a second, she said that, you said that, two different things. Let's talk about the, (laughs) I, I like leading people by helping them get to where they know they want to be. So it sounds like, I mean, going back to what you said about how you mentor, you don't give answers, you ask questions. It sounds like a lot of that is facilitating dialogue is a lot of what your leadership style is. That is exactly right. I am I am willing to make a decision. When I was a battalion commander in the 18th MASH, my Obsensio came in and said she wanted to do a, a Chinook lift of one of our boxes. And it was our heaviest box, 14,495 pounds. I said, why 14,495? She said, because the Chinook can only lift 14,500 in peacetime. And the unit wants to do it. And I want to do it. And I, everybody was saying no. And we, I, I had this conversation. I allowed them to talk. And I said, let's do it. And what's the worst that can happen? And my exo said, the worst that could happen is the rotors could fly off the helicopter and kill a bunch of people. <laughs> I said, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Uh, let's, let's try it. And we were out there, and the Chinook came in, started to lift the box, the blades. The Chinook is a two-rotor yeah, helicopter. It's huge. The, the, the blades start to bow up into almost a bowl shape. And I thought, oh, God, you know, can I duck fast enough to avoid these things? And I'm standing next to the two-star core deputy commander. And finally, the box starts to lift off the ground and the helicopter starts to fly away and the two stars beating on me. He's so excited. Um, I could have asked that operations NCO to do anything for the next year and a half of my command uh, because we had this conversation, not we, me, but we, them, while I'm orchestrating the conversation and then made a decision. It turns out, by the way, that she'd been trying to do this for about the previous three years and everyone had all the decision makers had said no. Okay. (laughs) So I think that my leadership style is one of uh, engendering dialogue, getting people to get their ideas. And then when I make a decision, whether their their recommendation was approved or disapproved, they felt they were part of the process. And that shows up in the quality of the unit. When people feel like they're part of the process? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I went to your old stomping grounds uh, with the 18th MASH. Uh, we went to uh, the uh, Joint Training Center, JRTC, at uh, Fort Polk. Fort Polk. Uh -huh. And yeah. um, we set up the hospital. We were only, I think, the third hospital to set up to provide level two support. And the accolades just kept rolling in. It wasn't because of me. I, you know, I was a commander. I, I hid in the headquarters. It was because this unit that we had built over the last year and nine months, um, where people had their say and were, you know, were led under my style, uh, got to show their stuff in a near real life setting. I, I do want to take time to talk a little bit about your time as a, so we've been leading up to your time as a general. One of the things you said was, you know, getting selected to general, I think you said was something like it was magic, meaning it's, this is this is a this is a small number of people that get selected. How many? When we talk about general officers in the Army Medical Department or the Army overall, how many are there? I'll answer that a couple. No, I'll answer that a couple of ways. Um, by federal law, there are two hundred and thirty-one active duty generals in the Army. Okay, and the Army has how many active duty soldiers? Uh, almost five. Almost five hundred thousand. So 500,000 overall population, 250 yep. generals. So this is <laughs> 231 by federal 231. I'm oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> 231. So, so this, when we talk about, when we talk about, like, this is a thing you're really, if you're thinking like, I want to set up my career to make that, you're really taking a long shot. Well, you know, let me put it, let me put it in perspective. My class of medical department generals, colonels selected for brigadier, there were four of us. Four selected out of 400, I'm sorry, four selected out of 943 records. So 943 medical department colonels were had records and four were selected for general officer. And there were, so 900, almost a thousand people were eligible Right. Four, four got it. Four got right. the nods. That's a, right. that's a very small. <laughs> so that, that's why I caution people when they say, how do I become a general? Yeah. Well, that's the wrong answer. And here's the reason why. Yeah. And nine, a four out of 943. That's the reason why. I, I want people to understand just how kind of unique that is. So you, you, you were selected to Brigadier General, eventually Major General, you held a number of roles as a general officer. I'm just going to rattle them off here. Commanding General of the European Medical Command, Deputy Surgeon General, uh, which is kind of like the Chief Operating Officer for the Medical Command. Uh, and you retired as the Commanding General of the Army Medical Department Center and School. You were also simultaneously the Chief of the Medical Service Corps. So these are all roles with significant strategic import and really expansive scopes. Long way from being that lieutenant back in in Germany with uh, you know trying to frame people by giving them uh, by, by <laughs> giving them uh, marijuana. <laughs> um, what was it like? How was it different to lead organizations of this scale and scope versus you know your other you know non-trivial organizations that you had led prior to that? Uh, the difference is as simple as leading through others instead of leading uh, by hands-on participation. 
as a lieutenant, I had 35 soldiers. I, I was down there in the mud with them. As a captain, a company commander, I was in the motor pool with them. And we were working. We were doing the work. As you become more and more senior and the roles become more and more complex and the organizations become larger and more complex, you, you have to get buy-in by your subordinate leaders because they're the ones who are going to make it happen. I, I've had more than one civilian colleague come up and say, well, you got it easy. You're a one star or you're a two star and, and uh, or and you, you, know, you say make it happen and it happens. And my answer is when that colonel, when that senior civilian turns around and leaves my office, I'm thinking, are they going to do what I just told them to do? Uh, be, one of the one of the deficits of moving so often is that those people who are left behind well, those people who are with you know they can slow roll you. And uh, because you're going to be gone in a year or two years. Wait you out. That's right. And it's not just the civilian colleagues, it's military colleagues as well. Um, Particularly for some of our more subspecialized military colleagues who don't move as often because um, there are not as many places to move them to. And so you have to, the, the difference is you are now leading through other people. So you are, you're not only getting buy-in to go and do something, but you're trying to get buy-in so that they will go and get buy-in so that they will go and get buy-in to accomplish what you want accomplished. Uh, and, and that's the biggest, biggest difference, I think, is leading through others and uh, in your current senior complex executive role versus leading by participating in the effort when you're more junior as a manager or a, a younger leader or executive. So, I mean, but that, that leading through others transition happened for you way before you made general officer. So I, I guess what I want to kind of get at, because that that's, I, I understand that, but that's something that probably you experienced when you were a battalion commander or, sure. you know, right. So, so what I'm trying to kind of get at is what was it like? As opposed to being the you know hospital commander of Launchstool, what was it like now being the uh, you know deputy surgeon general? Like what was the or the com- commanding general of the European Medical Command? How how is that different? Because yes, you're leading through others, but now you're the scale is dramatically different. Well, uh, first of all, your jokes are funnier. <laughs> just nice. like well, just like that, yeah, just like that, right? <laughs> Uh, someone told me that once, and so I, shortly uh, before I pinned on my star, I was still colonel, I, I said something, and there was a, a smattering of laughter. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm now wearing a star on my shoulder, and I, I said the exact same thing, and there was broad burst of laughter in the room. So uh, beyond the fact that you're you're smarter, you're more handsome, and your jokes are funnier, right? Uh, the scope of your responsibilities become huge. Um, my first job was as assistant surgeon general for, for support. So personnel and logistics and, and the like. And that's my headquarters was in San Antonio, but I'm responsible for this role of personnel and supply and such around the globe because I'm now a senior executive 
in a 24 time zone, $12.5 billion global healthcare system in both war and peace, in brick and mortar and under tentage. And so you can start to see how the roles as a lieutenant colonel, then a colonel, build this broad base of understanding becomes so critical when you're now at the, the apex of the pyramid, you know, the promotion pyramid, and you now have a global responsibility. When I went to Germany, back to Germany, as the commander of all brick and mortar healthcare in Europe, uh, and the advisor, the, the, the user surgeon, United States Army Europe surgeon, using the old military term of surgeon, which was a senior medical officer, whether a doc or not. And I, I now providing input based on input I get for a health, for a, a military system responsible for 92 countries and leading those who provide healthcare in those 92 countries. Deputy Surgeon General of the Army, I'm Chief Operating Officer of Army Medicine. So once again, $12.5 billion budget, which I personally am responsible for because the Surgeon General is focused on Congress and external um, stakeholders, while the COO, Deputy Surgeon General, is focused on running the system. Um, I, I, I am sitting in in uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of the Pentagon, and trying to get subordinate general officers to adhere to the, the strategic aims of the Surgeon General, uh, knowing full well that any one of them could do like the two-star that I tried to brief as a young captain, and they could put their chin on their chest and go to sleep while I'm talking and get up and do what they want to do anyway. So what does uh, Jack Bovender, the former CEO of HCA, how is that any different from what he's doing mm -hmm. or, or his chief operating officer, where they have, um, during his time, he had two divisions. And uh, though he's given guidance, he's got to have these two division CEOs do their, or presidents, do their thing. Chris Van Gorder, who runs Scripps Health out in San Diego with his uh, hospitals and his many, many outpatient clinics and he's relying on them so the complexity of the organization becomes very real and requires a leader who understands broadly how that organization uh, interacts the different pieces and parts interact with each other and then use his or her influence to get subordinate senior senior leaders to do what they want what what the ceo wants that makes sense. What does it mean to be the chief of the medical service corps? Uh, uh, in, in the army, there are various branches, uh, infantry, armor, artillery, and then you have the army medical department. Army medical department is made up of eight corps, civilian corps, the enlisted corps, and six officer corps, dental corps, medical corps, vet corps, medical specialist corps, uh, uh, Dental Corps, if I didn't say that, Medical Service Corps. The Medical Service Corps are the administrators, some clinicians, social work, optometry, psychology, and uh, our scientists, our Army medical scientists. The Chief of the Medical Service Corps is the 
the senior medical service corps officer in the army and is responsible for the life cycle management of the medical service corps. By that, I mean from recruiting to entry into the army to departure from the army and what goes into the training, the education, the assignments process, the development of the medical service corps officers all falls to the chief of the corps. There are about 4,500 active duty MSCs and about 4,500 reserve and national guard MSCs. And uh, the chief of the medical service corps is responsible for shepherding the individuals of the corps and then the corps as a whole um, to from recruiting to entry to departure in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a pretty good nutshell. Um, <laughs> what challenged your development as a leader in this kind of third stage of your career? What was kind of surprising to you? Um, you know, uh, uh, what did you really kind of have to be like, wow, this is different than I thought it might have been? If anything. I, I, I don't know where the surprises were other than the general doesn't bark an order and everybody automatically submissively responds, but rather the general who succeeds is the one who understands that he or she is, is working through others. There is a time and a place for barking in order and expecting an immediate subservient response. But those times are so infrequent and rare as to be ones that everyone kind of understands at the time. Day to day, it's gaining consensus, even though you're the top dog in the room. It's letting folks hash out, even though you already know the answer, it's letting folks hash out their positions so that when you make a decision, they say, well, I was heard. I had my peace. Um, now let me go and accomplish what the old man told me to accomplish. Um, so I don't know that I had any surprises other than working in order as a general was not the right answer. And I was surprised that my jokes got funnier. <laughs> That's good. Um, do you ever have conversations with, with field grades officers? So this is the, the level below general. So this um, right. that people who are in that second phase of their career. Do you ever have conversation with folks and look at them and say, you could be a general, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's what I would say you, you should be. What advice do you give to them? Do, do you give any advice? Given, oh, I mean, again, we've already talked about how small a chance this is. So, right. Um, um, I I don't answer the question if they say how do I become a general. Okay. <laughs> but but if we're having but if we're having a career discussion, yeah. And there is someone who has the right um, assignments to that point and the right temperament, and and what I perceive as the right skills. Sure, I'll talk to them about uh, what kind of assignments they might want to pursue if that's what they're interested in. It's, it's of no value to pursue that as a single goal if, if not selected 
you realize your career has been wasted because you're not prepared to do what you want to do on the outside. Hmm. Um, and so this, this officer who, with whom I talked about command and was wondering if she should take the command or not. I said, well, what if, what are you going to do if you don't take the command? And she outlined the opportunities that were there for her. And I said, those seem like perfectly good opportunities that are not going to necessarily hurt you as you move forward. Uh, You will be lacking this skill or this assignment success, which could impact on your look for flag officer. And she said, that's not my goal. And so it's helping the individual work their way through that. Now, if she said, well, that is my goal, I would have taken the conversation in a different direction and would have said, well, this is what you're going to miss out if that's your goal. So it's, it's a matter of helping the individual reach their own conclusion, but giving them honest feedback. Um, and then if they, if they do, let, let's say that they think they have a shot at flag officer, and I think they have a shot at flag officer, then we can start talking about, well, here are the two or three kinds of jobs you should do next that would be helpful for you most of which will require a board to select you for. So how do you get prepared for that board? What do you need to do next so that when the board looks at you, at whatever you're doing next, you pop to the top? So you had, you had this incredible 35-year career. If you could go back in time to 1977 uh, and talk to Lieutenant Rubenstein, what uh, what would you say to him as he you know boarded the plane to Germany? Yeah, um, I would tell him not do anything stupid. <laughs> um, I, I would have said what I tell people today and have throughout my career. And if any of my talks have been taped, you'll you'll see them there. Do every job better than it's ever been done before. Go in there, unless your intent is to go in and just strictly pay back your your time due and leave. You already know that. But for the rest of us, go in and do every job better than it's ever been done before. When I went into the 1st and 7th Infantry, I went in with that mindset. The battalion received one slot to French commando school. This is an infantry battalion. Five line companies. So there were probably 15 or 17 infantry young lieutenants who arrived the same time I did. The battalion commander selected me, the medical service corps medical platoon leader, to go to French commando school. I would like to think it's because of what he saw me doing day in and day out, even though I never even thought he looked at me. So I would say do every job better than it's ever been done before. Number two, Adhere to Rubenstein's 14 words. It's a, it's a career philosophy. It's a life philosophy. The first four words, take care of people. And, and we've been talking about that throughout our conversation. You know, listen to people, 
but it's more than just listening to people. That's one example. Take care of people because people are the ones who are going to make you successful. Number two, uh, two the second four words, take care of equipment. For some people, that's a pencil and a pad of paper. And, and these days, a cell phone. For other people, for Lieutenant Rubenstein, it was eight uh, M113 armored personnel carrier ambulances, two M577 uh, headquarters ambulances, and a couple of Dusenaf trucks and a, a Jeep. Take care of equipment. When I go in and have a CT scan on my back, I want to make sure the equipment's running right. Third four words, pay attention to detail. Healthcare administrator can kill a patient. Even though you or I go to jail if we touch a patient, we can kill a patient. If I choose to cut housekeeping to save money, and now the housekeeper, instead of having one hallway to do a shift, has to clean three hallways and doesn't get all the water up as they rush from one hallway to another, and a patient slips and knocks their head on the floor, I as an administrator have just killed a patient. Pay attention to detail. And then the last two words, for the longest time, and I have apologized to people for years over this, the last two words were, uh, have fun. And it's not a matter of having fun. Whitney Houston was having fun when, bless her heart, she dies face down in a bathtub. Um, the answer, and that weekend I changed have fun and have apologized to people who heard have fun from there. So my last two words, take care of people, take care of equipment, pay attention to detail. The last two words are have balance, to have balance. So that's the second thing I would tell Lieutenant Rubenstein. And then the third thing I would tell Lieutenant Rubenstein is um, to, to remember that the most important unit in the Army is the family unit. However, every soldier, sailor, airman, marine defines family. The most important unit is the family unit. So those are the three things I'd tell Lieutenant Rubenstein. I'm not sure he would listen to me. I would, I would like to think he would. <laughs> well, so you mentioned the family unit, and, I, and you had kind of mentioned, you know, uh, the, the challenges on your family of, of moving so many times. Military life is hard on families. It was hard on my wife and, and children. It's hard on, you know, it's, it's hard to move. Moving is, 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 especially as you lose control, you know, the, the military decides it's time for you to go. It doesn't matter that your kid just started their senior year of high school or whatever. It's, it, how did you manage your family life while working? It's just this string of really demanding jobs. I mean, you really, you know, I reviewed your CV and I was like, there's no kind of downtime here. There was no hanging out as the assistant to the assistant, something or other. <laughs> uh, I mean, you just went from hard thing to hard thing, which is part of why you made it to where you did, I think, um, you know. Um, uh, what was your experience with that? And what advice would you have for soldiers who, who, uh, and professionals, uh, uh, other than military, who have, are really pursuing their family, their, their their professional ambitions, but also don't want to look back um, yeah. uh, with regret. Um, I believe it's important to have that open discussion as early in the in the career as possible. Uh, I mentioned earlier that my wife and I had that discussion before we were married. 
And we decided, well, let's give it 20 years and see if we like it or not. <laughs> um, and so having that important discussion is critical. I mentioned earlier my, my high school buddy who became a college buddy, who became a medical service corps officer, went to Fort Hood and um, two and a half years got uh, orders or was told that his next assignment would be Fort Lewis, Washington. And he came home and told his wife, it's beautiful, beautiful at Fort Lewis. We're going to have a grand time. And she says, I'm not moving. I've got a good job. I've got promotion potential. I'm not leaving Fort Hood. Um, they didn't have that conversation. Uh, we had that conversation and we knew that we were going to be moving. Of course, early on in my career, that was every three years. Um, and sometimes now we're moving soldiers every year or two years. Um, the um, We moved about, we have a good healthy dose, my family, of one year and two year assignments. When my daughter walked into fifth grade, that was the first time she walked into the same school building two years in a row. And she went to three high schools. And at the end of uh, her junior year in high school, we said, well, you can stay here at Fort uh, at Augusta, Georgia, and move in with your science teacher and, and stay here. And she said, well, where my family goes, I go. And she went and she moved to Fort Hood with us. And some kids do very, very well with that. She was a valedictorian at both high schools. And the, um, so, but combined with understanding is that the soldier has got, and I'm talking about a single soldier family, not a dual soldier family, mm -hmm. big difference. Mm -hmm. um, the soldier has got to work at balancing his efforts. I've got a mentee uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, civilian mentee, and she's taking a new job in her previous job. She just wrote me this morning. She's taken her first vacation in, in two years. Uh, she mentioned that the new job that she has in Atlanta, the people are less likely to get together after hours. Her previous job, they got together frequently after hours, but they also talked about business after hours and they never got away from that. In her current job, people aren't, and it's not just COVID, but people in that particular organization are not as after houry that she's used to. And they don't mix work and personal or family time. And she, now that she has twins who are about eight months old, she finds that a relief because um, she has more time. So you have to balance. When I was chief of staff of Ermsey, um, I lived in Heidelberg. My family lived in Landstuhl because we didn't want to move my uh, Landstuhl uh, kids go to high school at Ramstein Air Base, which is a typical 900 person student American high school. And Heidelberg is a very small high school. So we wanted to keep him at the big high school. Um, but I had an agreement with my boss, 1700 every Friday. I was in the car driving back to Lunchtown. Didn't matter what we were going on, I was gone. He agreed to that. Um, throughout my career, I found that if I stood up and said, I've got a band concert to go to, I've got a parent-teacher conference to go to, I found that typically my boss said, okay, and off I went. You've got to balance. Uh, I think that I learned that initially as an assistant operations officer at noon, when the second hand on the clock hit noon, I stood up and went and went to the gym. 
my boss was the most double, triple type A you would know. It drove him crazy that I could stop a project, drop the pencil on the desk, get up and walk out to go to the gym. But I did it every day, five days a week. So understanding relationship, having that conversation between uh, spouses or partners, and then working hard, the soldier working hard at balancing the military life, which is all consuming and family life. You know, at best, military career is going to last 30 years because colonels have to retire at 30 years. But you've only been married 30 years or so at that point, maybe less. And you got a whole lot more years to live. It would be pretty bad to live them by yourself. So speaking of, of after, uh, after the military, life after the military, 35 years in, when it came time to, to retire, were you ready? Well, in a matter of speaking, I was ready. Uh, every soldier has a uh, system-imposed mandatory departure date, expiration date, kind of like a can of beans, right. tattooed on their forehead. And um, if you are, if you've not been selected for colonel, you know you've got a mandatory at 28 years. If you are a colonel, you know you have a mandatory at 30. Well, the same goes for generals. You have a mandatory retirement date. And so from the perspective of knowing my expiration date, what's nice about that is, yes, I'm ready because I know what the date is and I can prepare for it. I, re I, I reached my expiration date. The beans were getting stale inside the can and uh, I prepared for it. I, I had 13 months. The, the Army is the military is a wonderful employer. Um, you get about a year, you're still doing your job, but you get your retirement papers up to a year out. It can be less, but you can order, you can request them up to a year out. So you've got a year to go to some of the transition schools the military offers, the courses, I should say, the transition courses, and to be thinking about how you're actually going to make this transition. So from that perspective, yes, I was ready. From the perspective of Am I enjoying what I'm doing and I want to keep doing it? I was not ready at all. I, you know, I was at the top of my game and I felt good at what I was doing. I was competent at it. And so from that perspective, no, I wasn't ready. It, it's, that's, that sort of muddies the water. Sorry about that. No, no, that's great. That's a good answer. I mean, yeah, you knew the time and, and the chance of extending beyond that would have required a promotion. And there's one three-star general in the medical department, right? I mean, there, there is one and uh, that one was selected and it wasn't me. And uh, a couple <laughs> so, days later, I was actually in Australia when the announcement was made, yeah. uh, attending a conference. And a couple days later, I got back to the States and, and uh, it was time to drop my papers. Now that's okay. Yeah. I had a good run. Yeah. Well, what was it like? So there you are. I mean, 35 years of, of active duty. You, you were in the, the Corps of Cadets at AM. I mean, the military had been your life for almost 40 years, I mean, 39 years, basically. What was it like to take the uniform off on the last, the last time? It, it, was, it was okay. Um, first of all, I worked until the very last day. In fact, I still had my 
swipe card so I can get into the headquarters. And so we had the ceremony. I retired. I, I went up to the very last day. And uh, I, that weekend, I went up to the headquarters because I had some things to do. And I swiped the card and it wouldn't work. And I rang the uh, bell and the duty officer came out and opened the door about four inches and said, sir, I've been told to tell you it's over. Go home. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and funny. I said, but I have I have things I have to do. And they said, tell your aide come on Monday and get your papers and your computer and you can do it at home. Um, so. I. I, I went through a very deliberate process, which I recommend to others, and uh, that made it okay to take the uniform off. Um, I I don't miss some things. I miss the people. Uh, fortunately, I still interact with many of them. But uh, if you do the proper planning, then it's okay. Now, I had the benefit. I changed command seven times. So seven times I got in the car and I drove away and did not look in the rearview mirror. You don't, you know, there's only one commander at a time and you take, you take the colors and you hand it to the next commander and that is it. So I was comfortable in walking away, having done it seven times and not looking back. Uh, and so I, I did my planning, which I recommend to others, and I didn't look back. Now, that's it's, easy to but, say in San Antonio when I've got Fort Sam Houston yeah, and yeah. I'm still invited to <laughs> ceremonies and such. Yeah. But, the, you know, the prior six times when you handed over the colors, you were moving on to another assignment. This That time was, that was the end, right? So That time was the end. That makes yeah. it a little bit tougher. Yeah, yeah. you're right. That's yeah. true. Oh yeah, I, I I had a I was super excited when I retired because I was going to what I thought was a dream job, and still consider a dream job. But you know, I was coming here to UNH, uh, super excited about it. But I have to say, it hit me I don't know, like a a year later, I think maybe you know, just like wow, I, I, you know, I miss a lot of things about about my time in the military. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you. So you 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 um, retired in 2012. So we thank you for sharing your your story. It's great. Um, you made you you obviously made your preparations. Part of which I I, I assume was was to um, establish your initial relationship with uh, Texas State. Was that something you had already kind of had lined up, or was that something you you negotiated after the fact? No, that that was not lined up. Um, okay. When I, when I talk about planning, uh, what I tell folks to do is in a quiet room somewhere, um, no distractions, just by yourself to number one, sit down and come up with a list of things you want to do, want to do. And after you have exhausted that list, you start a second list, things that I need to do. Typically financial, possibly family. Um, the third thing you do still alone and quiet is you see where they merge and how they might fit the things I want to do and the things I need to do. And then step four is to sit down with your, uh, your partner, 
whether that's a spouse or a partner uh, or however you describe that and say, here's what I want to do, what I need to do, how it fits, what do you think? Um, and so that's what I did. The uh, phone call from Texas State came out of the blue. In fact, I had spent my want to do, my number one was I don't want to work full time. I, I didn't want to do that. Um, my number two was I want to develop the next generation of leaders, having no idea what that meant. And then it went from there. On the I need to do side was nothing. Um, we worked hard for 35 years of sacrifice to build up a war chest. So financially, I didn't have to do anything. As far as family is concerned, my wife and I graduated from high school 15 miles from Fort Sam Houston, the headquarters I had at Fort Sam Houston. So we're home. So I, you know, as far as need to take care of family already here. Um, so I didn't have needs. They merged very nicely. Then I got the call from Texas state out of the clear blue. Okay. Well, so I really, I mean, as I alluded to at the beginning of the, of the podcast, I really wanted to talk to you today. Uh, setting aside your fascinating career, I, I really was interested in kind of your thinking about what it was you wanted to do as this second career, because I've made a similar decision. Um, you know, I wanted to teach young people and help them uh, get launched in their careers. But I mean, you could have easily walked into a high level role in a civilian organization. I imagine you probably had lots of people talking to you about what's, what's next. <laughs> So what was your, what, why did you decide you didn't want to work part-time? I mean, so you, you had, you were financially set. That's great. Um, but a lot of people who are don't still have that, you know, need to, they want to go. What, what made you decide I want to go, I want to get into the, you know, not to work part-time. I want to, um, I, and I want to focus on developing leaders. I have spent most of my military career developing leaders, developing younger soldiers, both commissioned, warrant, and non-commissioned, as well as civilian colleagues for their next step. And I really enjoy that. And not knowing what I meant when I said develop, continue to develop leaders, I, I knew that that's what I enjoyed and derived pleasure from and a sense of accomplishment. And so that's what I wanted to do. I had a mantra. I started my preparation for retirement with the mantra, I'm not looking for a full-time position. And I very, very rapidly changed that to I'm neither looking for nor accepting a full-time position because I could tell the look in the eyes when someone would come walk towards me from across the reception, for example, at um, ACHE Congress, and I, as I got closer, I put my hand up and I'd say, not going to talk about it because there were some very, very nice offers out there. But I felt that that would take me away from what I really wanted to do. You can, you can develop leaders as a senior executive, as a CEO, as a COO of a system or a, a hospital or other large complex organization. Um, by being the CEO or the COO and developing a, a um, leadership academy or some sort. But I wanted to be able to be available 
in a, on a wider scale. So I have gone to MHA programs or whatever the university calls it from the East Coast to the West Coast, talking to students at, at the invitation. I just returned from the University of Louisville. Lee Dooley's stopping oh, Nice, Lee. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Lee, Lee brought me in. Uh, I'm a fairly cheap date. I asked for coach airfare, Hampton Inn, and uh, a couple of meals. I, I don't charge for my my talks. I, I had a, a ACHE, well-renowned uh, faculty member, say, um, never ask for less than $10,000. Well, the first time I tried that, and I only tried it once, it made my stomach churn. Um, I just I just asked for travel reimbursement. And when I go someplace, so so I, I it's not just developing leaders in one organization, but uh, I have gone from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast with college programs. And when I'm on the campus, I ask to speak to their ROTC cadets, whether they're Army, Navy, or Air Force Marine, uh, Air Force Marine. Uh, I've spoke. I speak to. Um, civilian organizations, uh, 6,500 people gathered for an annual convention and I'm the keynote talking to them about the same thing that I might talk to a group of 25 at the ACHE chapter in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, at a breakfast. And I just feel that I, I'm a larger, I have a larger, a broader range of opportunities by not being tied down to a single organization. And it's, it's worked out pretty well in that regard. Uh, I, I track all my travels and where I've spoken, um, both in uniform, I still occasionally put on my uniform. If I'm, you know, I was in uniform in um, March of 21, out in California, I flew out to California, put on a uniform and promoted a captain to major. Oh, nice. um, um, so I still put on the uniform less frequently now. But it's it's the opportunity to go where I'm asked and do it. Now, I know that someone who's running a, a, an organization can be invited to go and do that. But uh, the third part to my I teach, I talk, I travel. The third part is I like the freedom. And my wife and I wanted the freedom to travel. My mom, 88 years old, says, you traveled for 35 years in the Army. And I said, well, no, I went with the army, told me to go for 35 years. <laughs> we flew to Kentucky and we were with our grandsons for about a month. We flew back here. We were on FaceTime a couple of weeks later. And our grandson says, when are you coming back? And my wife says, grandpa's making the flight reservations right now. And I'm sitting next to her and I said, I am. And she says, you are get busy. <laughs> um, so it's oh. the freedom. You can't do that if you right. are tied to a single organization. And, and so my, what, when people ask me, what do I do today? I teach, I talk, I travel. And that makes and you I happy. Can't, I can't do it that way. All three of those makes me very happy. It makes yeah. me very happy. And I can't do all three of those. In my mind, I can't do all three of those very well if I'm tied to a single organization. You know, I mean, I, 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 I think about you know my choice, and and I'm I'm very happy with my choice. 
99% of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, every now and then a bad day, every now and then. And, and on those bad days, I'm like, I could have gone to a civilian healthcare organization made like three times what I, you know, for the, you know professor pays. Not great. Um, uh, uh, but I don't need it. Like, you know, like you, my wife and I were very conservative financially and um, uh, with my, with my retirement pay and, you know, our savings, I could like, you know, resign tomorrow and just hang out at the house. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do that because that's not who I am, but I mean, I, I could. Uh, so I have a privilege to, you know, I, I feel like I have a privilege for that. And I just, um, having observed what you've been doing for the last several years, I mean, I just, um, uh, and you started on this journey before I did. I just, you know, I, I admire it, uh, first of all. And, and of course it reflects, you know, my own, I think my own values as well. Uh, so maybe that's a little bit of self-admiration or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm curious kind of how does this fit into your, your own philosophy of what makes a life worth living, what makes a good life? To back up a moment, it's important for me to say that these decisions are highly individual, highly individual. My finance professor at Baylor was George Geisen. And he would talk about big knobby tires. You know, you can buy a truck with the stock tires or you can buy the truck with the big knobby tires. But if what you want is big knobby tires, that's what you're going to buy. This retirement planning and decision-making is individual. And you cannot take any decision away from anybody for what they decide, because that's what they want and they need and how the want and the need merge and then how that rolls into the family discussion. And so I, I will never tell somebody, well, you really should travel more. And that, no, some people, I mean, it's very highly individual and, um, and you just have to applaud each person for making their own decisions. How does this fit into a, Ask me your question again. I'm sorry. How does this fit into your vision of what makes a good life or a oh, worthy life? Yeah. Well, as with a retirement decision, what makes a worthy life is very, very individual. It could yeah. be money. It could be mission. If it's mission, it might be mission to nation. It might be mission to self. It might be mission to others. Betty White's mission included animals. And uh, her love of animals and, and how that continues to this day, because on the celebration of her 100th birthday, uh, we were asked to donate to organizations that cater to the animal rescue, for example. So it's very, very individual. Easiest thing for someone to tell someone else is you got to have good work-life balance. If I've heard that once as you, I've heard that a bajillion times. And I, I always want to, I always put my hand up or want to put my hand up and say, how do you define that? Um, so this idea of a worthy life, um, I, it's, it's very individualistic for me, it's mission and it's mission to others. Yeah. It's, uh, others are my family. Others are those, uh, people around me who I want to help get better at whatever pursuit they're getting better at, whether it's a leader, 
or a technical manager, you know, a technician uh, who's managing, uh, but not exclusively leading. Uh, when, when you think about A Worthy Life, I, I think about it's, I, gosh, I don't know how old this movie is now, 30 years or so, Mr. Holland's Opus. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And this guy is going to be the, uh, is going to write the next great American musical opus. And that's his goal. But he realizes he needs a job. So he goes and he becomes a high school music teacher. And um, what, 30 years later, he has not written his opus and he retires from the high school. And uh, he considers himself a failure uh, until on the occasion of his retirement, he's brought into the auditorium. And his former students are all up there on the stage, many of them. Uh, one is the governor of the state, and they play his in, his unfinished opus. And uh, he says, uh, life is what happens. Plans are what happens when life gets in the way, or words to that effect. He had these great plans, and life got in the way. I, I think a, he had a worthy life. He, he had generations of high school students, some of whom had no confidence when they came into the band hall and left with great confidence. And so a worthy life is up to the individual. For me, a worthy life is one in which when you die, the people who were in your life have good things to say about you. That's a pretty good definition. Yeah, that's that's only one definition. That's mine. Yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, to be fair, I'm putting you on the spot with that. But um, you know, uh, this is like my eighty something uh, uh, interview, <laughs> and that and you are the very first person I've ever asked that question to. <laughs> oh, so. Lucky me. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, I look forward to when you post this. I look forward to hearing what I said. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to close on uh, along that line. Um, you said uh, you said just now, you know, a worthy life is something when people. I think you said, uh, and we'll have to uh, to play back in a, in, a, in a minute. But uh, uh, the people, you know, remember you fondly. I think to, to that effect. So, um, what would you like your legacy to be? And, and you could frame that as an officer, as uh, you know, as a um, as a medical service corps officer, as a as a teacher, as, as a person, what would, what would you? Um, I'm not going to look at you at the screen right now. I'm going to look up at a picture that I have on the wall and I'm going to tell you a story. So this is September, 1944. The Americans and the Canadians and the Brits have broken out from the D-Day beachheads and they are starting to make their move. Part of that breakout is to move South and West to take the port of Brest. Brest, France, in the northwest corner of France. The Allies intended Brest to be the port of debarkation for munitions, uh, bullets and such, for people, for equipment, for supplies to support the, uh, the War II fight in Europe, for that European part of the fight. Um, and it was the largest port on the Atlantic seaboard, and that was the goal. And so the 8th Infantry Division has the mission to take the port of Brest. Defending the port of Brest is 
the second German Airborne Division, commanded by Lieutenant General Hermann Ramke. And Hermann Ramke is given the mission from Hitler, defend at all costs. Now, you're an old soldier yourself. You know that that's a real life, honest to goodness mission uh, to protect and defend at all costs. Defend at all costs means die in place. You are to defend to the last man. Hermann Ramke, the commander of the second airborne division of the German army, is a battle-hardened, hard-as-nails paratrooper, airborne commander, and he takes his mission literally. He is defending the port of Brest. By the way, he destroys the port of Brest to the extent that it was never used by the Allies during the war. So the 8th Infantry Division is fighting against the 2nd Parachute Division, and uh, Hermann Ramke is doing his job as he's been ordered to do, and it gets to the point where this just is not acceptable anymore, even to Ramke. And so he sends surrender orders over to the American side. And the Americans say, got it, come over to the bunker and surrender to the commander. And so Ramke gets uh, in his vehicle and he goes to the American bunker where he's told to report. And he gets out of his vehicle. Lieutenant General, three-star Herman Ramke is standing there. And out of the bunker become, comes Brigadier General, one-star Charles Kenham. This is a true story. And um, Ramke comes to stiff attention because in the German way of doing things, a three-star general does not surrender to a one-star general. Three stars surrendered to three stars. And Ramke, standing at attention, stares down the one-star American commander, actually the assistant division commander, for support of all things. Canham, Charles Canham, and says, what are your credentials to accept my surrender? Canham has soldiers behind him. Canham sweeps his arms behind him, pointing to the American soldiers, and he says, these are my credentials. The picture I'm looking at, the painting is by Rick Reeves, titled, These Are My Credentials. That's how I want to be remembered by the people who I touched during their military or civilian lives, whether they were soldiers or never in the army, uh, the young mentee that I told you about in Atlanta has not spent a day in the army. The, the lives that I have touched feel that they are better because of me being in their orbit. That's how I'd like to be remembered by those people who I believe are my credentials. Over. Yeah, all right. Well, that's, I think, a great way to leave this. Hopefully, you've got a long, long run ahead of you. Um, I didn't mean to make that sound like <laughs> you're fading out yet. You've got a long no. way to go. No, um, no, 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 no. Um, but, uh, but that's an aspiration, you know? That, that's I, I like that's that. my aspiration. I like that. Well. General Rubenstein, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you very much, Mark, to you and to your listeners. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm humbled by it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, 
and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.